Let's open our Bibles, please, to the 37th Psalm. Psalm 37. This is, of course, a Psalm of David, and this is a Psalm that shows us confidence for those Christians who are perplexed or worried or concerned about how that sometimes in this world it seems like that that wicked men prosper and have a great deal and poor folks have nothing. And this, to David, was a great problem. He couldn't understand why that the wicked did so well and yet why others that seemed to be trying to live a Christian life and live the right kind of life didn't do so well. And this is a problem through the ages. And this was written by David in his last days. If you'll notice verse 25, it shows you that it was his last days before we read. He says, I have been young and now I am old. So that shows us that David's last days were there. And in relationship to the time that he wrote it, you can find that it was, of course, that he was old at this time. And it's hard for a saint to understand then why God allows wicked men to prosper and and the righteous to suffer. This has been a problem throughout the ages. Now, we're in Psalm 37, beginning with verse 1. But he tells, David tells us not to fret or worry about it. The Bible says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. So, the word fret means not to worry. Fret not, worry not. In other words, uh, actually worry means to wear away by friction, to just keep fretting and worrying like you'd rub a stone, one rock against another, and just wear it away. It would take a long time, wouldn't it? And it just keeps on grinding and you keep on fretting and keep on worrying. But David says, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. And uh, that that's looking at the first verse of Psalm 37. We have a reference in Job 21, verse 7 says, Wherefore do the wicked live? Become old. And it says, Yea, are mighty in power. He asks the question. Job does. He says, Wherefore do the wicked live? They even grow old and they even become mighty in power. He couldn't understand it either. David couldn't understand it. You turn over to... Hold your place in Psalm 37 because that'll be where we're teaching from. But if you turn to the 73rd Psalm, you'll find it says a great deal about this as well. And I'll read a few verses in Psalm 73 and then we'll come back to Psalm 37. Psalm 73 says, Truly God is good to Israel, David says, even to such as are of a clean heart. But he says, As for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. David is saying, the psalmist is saying here, doesn't attribute this psalm to David, by the way, though he wrote most of them, and I believe David wrote this psalm. Perhaps he didn't, but anyway, this psalm is, of course, in nature of what we're studying. And he says, God is good to Israel as a whole. But he says, my feet were on slippery ground when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Look at this in verse 3. He says, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to describe. He says, there are no bands in their death. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. 
Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. He's talking about the wicked who prosper in this world. They are corrupt and speak wickedly. Concerning oppression, they speak lawfully. Now look, they set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walketh through the earth. So he goes on to describe the wicked in their prosperity. Well, that's what he's telling us here in this 37th Psalm. Turn back to it. Is not to worry about it. Not to fret about it. Because after all, God is going to take care of his own. And so need not worry about those that are wicked and prosper in this world. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone that prospers in this world is wicked. Neither does it mean that that there are not wicked who do not prosper in this world. But he says there are many that do. And that's what he's talking about here. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither thou be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Now then, if you look at verse 2, it tells their certain doom. It's going to come upon them. Look in verse 2. It says, For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. So, doom is coming. Doom is certain to come upon them. Just the same as judgment is due to all sin, it will come upon those that are workers of iniquity. Now look at verse 3. What are we to do in face of this? What is a child of God to do? What are you to do? What are you and I to do? It says, trust in the Lord. In other words, we're to have faith. Even though we're surrounded with these problems, we're to have faith. Trust means faith. Trust means believe. Trust means to depend upon. It's the equivalent of believe or roll yourself upon. Uh, Trust in the Lord. Roll yourself upon the Lord. Depend upon the Lord. And that's what it's talking about. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. In other words, if we trust in the Lord, God is going to take care of us. We have to have that conviction and, and uh, determination that whatever comes or goes, as long as we're trusting in the Lord, we cannot be on the losing side. There may be times we'll suffer uh, problems and trials. There may be times that we'll be almost without anything. But He promises, the Lord promises, that if we trust in Him, He's going to take care of us. Now, that's a wonderful thing to learn to do, isn't it? It's to trust in the Lord. And then He goes further. First of all, in verse 2, He said, um, in verse 1, He said, Fret not thyself. Then in verse 3, He says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Uh, And in verse 4, He says, Delight thyself. Look at verse 4. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. In other words, we're to not only depend upon the Lord and do good, but we're to be delighted. In other words, we're not to delight ourselves with carnal and worldly things. We're not to delight ourselves in everything other than the Lord. But delight thyself also in the Lord. He's telling us to be happy in the things of God. Be thankful for everything that God does for us. And then if you'll notice the last part of the verse, and he shall give thee, look at this now, this is very important. He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now this has stumped many a person. Sometimes we say, well, anything I want, God will give me. No, he didn't say that. He says, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. 
Now, what it means simply is this, that we must want to do the things of God and be in the will of God. And then if we're in the will of God, He'll give us what is according to His will. Not just everything we desire. We might desire a lot of things that's not good for us, and He certainly will not give us those things. You see, a lot of folks expect everything that they pray for. They say, Lord, give me this and give me that and do this for me and do that for me. And yet these things are not good for us, and God knows. You remember in the book of First John, John says that if we do His will, we have the things that we ask of Him. He that doeth His will. So, we, he says if we ask anything, now listen, John says if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us, and we know that if He heareth, hear us, we have the petition that we desired of Him. Why? We ask something that He was willing to do for us. We were in His will, and therefore we could ask uh, the desires of our heart, because our heart desired the things God desires for us to have. Not the things that we desire to have. I might, I might say, Lord, give me a, a million dollars. I don't expect I'd get it. I might say, Lord, give me a new Cadillac. I don't expect I'd get it. I might say, Lord, give me this or that or the other. That might be the desire of my heart, but if I'm not delighting myself in God and being in His will, then He wouldn't give me the desire of my heart. So the desire of my heart has to do with me being in the will of God. And let's remember that. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Now look at the next verse. What are we to do in verse 5? Look at verse 5. It says, Commit thy way, commit thy way unto the Lord. In other words, you say, Lord, here's my way, and I want to commit it to you. In other words, I want to do your way. I want to live like you would have me to live. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Now, what does it say? Trust also in Him. Roll yourself upon Him. Trust in Him. Believe on Him. Have faith in the Lord. And He shall bring it to pass. In other words, He's the one that is going to prosper your way. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. So that means to trust in, in the Lord with all of our heart, to commit our ways into the Lord, to cast our cares upon the Lord, and He will take care of us. And that's what we need to learn to do. He shall bring it to pass. There's another scripture that says, commit thy way into the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. In other words, you say, well, I don't know what I ought to do. You may come to places and times in life you say, well, I don't, just don't know whether I ought to do this or that. And you may be undecided. But the Bible says, commit thy way unto the Lord, and he shall direct thy thoughts, or thy thoughts shall be established. He will establish your thinking to where you'll do what he would want you to do. So, we have a lot of good instructions here. Now then, let's look at verse 6. Verse 6 and seven. Let's read these together. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the wicked of the man uh, who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Now you see those things? What do we find here? We find instructions here to be patient. He shall bring forth thy righteousness. As the light and thy judgment is the noonday, rest in the Lord and wait. Look at this. Wait patiently for Him. Sometimes we become too impatient, don't we? 
We have need of patience. The Bible says you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might inherit the promise. Most of the time we get too impatient. We say, Lord, I just can't wait for you to do something. But if we'll learn to be patient and learn to wait, Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read Hebrews chapter 10 for you. And uh, verse... Verses 35 and 36 says this. It says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Now look. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Ye have need of patience. That's what Paul is saying in the book of Hebrews. He says, we need to wait patiently. That's what David said here. Wait patiently for him. We get in too big a hurry, don't we? We want the Lord to do something for us today or even yesterday. It ought to already been done. That's the way we are. We're just too anxious. But the Lord is, has his own time. God had his own time in sending his Son into this world, didn't he? The Bible says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. Remember, between the Old and the New Testament, there was a period of 400 years of silence that God did not send prophet or, or uh, revelation to man. A whole period of 400 years, it seemed like wickedness increased and everything got worse and worse. And then all of a sudden, Christ came into this world. And the words concerning Christ was that uh, John the Baptist went before him and we find that the things spoken of Christ, that he would turn, the, turn people back to, to God, and things spoken of John the Baptist. So we find that uh, God is on time. He was on time in sending Jesus the first time, and he'll be on time in sending him the second time when he comes again. But we're to rest in the Lord. Look at verse 7. And wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Don't worry about this fellow over here if he's wicked because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. You and I sometimes we say, there's a man that's just as wicked as he can be, and he has thousands of dollars, and he goes on and, and, and goes on in his wickedness. It seems like the more wicked he becomes, the more he has. Now, you've seen that happen in this world. All of us have seen it happen. But... David says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that, wicked man. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way. Now, let's look at verse 8. He says this, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. You quit being angry, he says. Forsake being wrathful. Forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. We're to cease from anger. James chapter 1. Let me read in the book of James. The first chapter, and we'll read verses uh, 19 and 20. Listen to these. James says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and then he says, slow to wrath. Slow to get angry, slow to wrath. He says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You see, if we get angry and mad about everything, this works not the righteousness of God. We're to learn to be patient. We're to learn to be long-suffering. We're to learn... You see, if any anger has to be 
manifested, God Almighty is able to bring. He's the avenger of all such, he says. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So instead of you and I trying to go out and and, uh, get even, so to speak, with someone, or become mad or wrathful or angry at someone, and say, well, they did me wrong, I'm going to get even, just leave it in God's hands. And He can take care of it. And I'll guarantee you, He will take care of it. Because God is a righteous judge. You and I may be clouded somewhat. We may be a little bit, of preju- little bit prejudiced in our thinking, and we say, well, He deserves more than this. But God knows exactly what our, the enemy deserves, and He knows exactly what you and I deserve, and He knows what's righteous vindication or judgment. So, learn to leave it to God. Cease from anger and forsake wrath, back in our psalm, Psalm 37, verse 8. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Now then, as we continue teaching this psalm in verse 9, we just take it verse by verse so we can see what each verse says and progress right on down. Look at verse 9 now. And always hold your place where we're studying. Like we're studying the 37th psalm, hold your place there because that's the main part. Then if we turn to a reference, we'll always come back to there very quickly. Because if I say verse 9, I'm coming right back to it. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Someone says, well, I don't see how that's true. Uh, We wait upon the Lord, and we haven't inherited the earth. Well, the time is not yet that that, uh, God's children shall inherit the earth. There's going to be a long time for that before that will uh, come to pass. Now, it does tell here that judgment is going to come upon evildoers. They're going to be cut off. But those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. But that's in a future time that this is going to happen. God will give us what's necessary of it now. What's needful for our being while we live now. But there's a future time that these blessings will be ultimately completely fulfilled. Now then, look at verse 10. For yet a little while, a little while, and the wicked shall not be. You see, it doesn't make any difference how much a man may prosper in this world. If he's wicked and sinful, if he prospers in in cheating other people, and he gets a great deal of wealth, God says, for yet a little while, you know, in due time, he's going to have to meet God. In due time, he's going to have to lay down this body of clay. In due time, and sometimes before... He gets old. Sometimes he's not permitted to reach that mature age. Sometimes he's cut off early in life. Because the Bible says in another place, He that being often reproved and hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. So we find that many are cut off early in life. And then it says, Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. In other words, he just won't be there. Look at verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. We know that to an extent and a degree that's true, true with God's children today. But it's not true in the fullest sense of the word. God will give you what's necessary, we've already said, in this life. But as far as inheriting the earth and delighting in an abundance of peace, we will not know real peace. We have peace inside now. But we will not know real peace complete upon this earth till Jesus comes again. We talked about that this morning. Till the Prince of Peace comes. 
That's the only way it will ever come. Because as long as men upon this world, and, and this world is ruled by ordinary sinful men, we're going to have wars, aren't we? Refer again to the book of James. I won't turn to it, but James says this. He says, From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Come they not even from our own members? Even from within? So as long as you have men in this world, all over this world, that are wicked men, you're going to have wars. You're going to have troubles. But there's a time when Jesus will come and establish a rule and reign of righteousness upon this earth. But let's look at this now then. Verse 12. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. What does the Lord think about that? Look in verse 13. The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. You see, the Lord's not in any hurry. The wicked plots against the just. He gnashes upon him with his teeth. You know, God never gets disturbed about anything. He's got all the time there is. It says here, The Lord shall laugh at him, for he seeth that his day is coming. He knows that it won't be long till he'll bring, have to bring judgment. The wicked have drawn out the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy and slay such as be of upright conversation. And that's true in many cases. They draw out the sword. They have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy. But what happens? And such as be of upright conversation. But the next verse tells what's going to happen to them. It says their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. What happens? You read back in the book of Esther and you find, you remember old Haman, he built a gallows for Mordecai. He built a great gallows there to hang Mordecai on. He says, I'm going to get rid of that, that Jew. He pesters me and he bothers me all the time. And I'm going to get rid of him sure enough. And what happened? Everything backfired on Haman, didn't it? The old king, Ahasuerus, he said, you know, one time there's somebody that did something good for the king and the king didn't ever do anything for him. And they looked in the records, the chronicles, and they found out that the man that, that warned the king of some that were going to slay him was Mordecai, wasn't it? Mordecai did that. And he says, what's been done for this man? And they said, well, nothing. They told the king nothing had been done for him. And he says, you do this for him. And you honor him. You put him on the best Horse I have, put on fine garments, and you run him, parade him down the street, and honor him in front of the people. And old Haman, he thought it was concerning himself. And Haman said, "Well, I, I'm sure glad the Lord is about to, uh, the king is about to honor me this way." And so, what happened? Haman thought he was going to get all those honors, but he says, after he instructed Haman what to do to that man that the king wanted to honor, he says, "Do this to Mordecai." And then after that, old Haman got so, so upset that he went back home crying and taking on because it was not him that was to be honored. And then turned right around and he was hanged upon the gallows that he had made for Mordecai. What does God say right here? Look at this. He says, Their sword shall enter into their own heart and their bows shall be broken. You see, God is able to reverse judgment, isn't he? He's able to reverse things and, and make things just and right. Old Abraham of old said, Will not the God of all the earth do right? You can depend on it that God will do right. Now look at verse 16. He says, A little 
A little that a righteous man hath, now look, is better than the riches of many wicked. I'd rather have a little and it be mine and know I've gotten it in the right way. And if it's just a little bit of food for the table, to enjoy it and go, go to bed and be able to sleep at night, knowing I haven't tried to crook anybody out of anything, than to have all the riches of the wicked. And that's what God is saying here. He says, a little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. In verse 17 now, notice what it says. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholdeth the righteous. God some way takes care. He upholds those that are His. Verse, uh, right on down through verse 20, we'll read some more. The Lord knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. Let's read that one, then we'll come on to the next verse. In the days of famine. In an evil time. In other words, in a, in a time that's hard is what we're talking about. We're not talking about a, an evil time as far as sin is concerned, but an evil time as far as calamity or trouble or trials or tragedy and the background here shows us, and in the days of famine, certainly that's an evil time, isn't it? Days of famine are evil times. And it says, in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. Remember old Elijah back in the book of First Kings? What happened to Elijah? There was a famine in the land, a drought in the land. And God told Elijah, he says, you go over there by the, the brook. And he says, you drink of that brook chariot. And he says, I'll have the ravens to bring you food. I'll have the ravens to feed you over there. And they brought bread and meat morning and evening. And what happened? After a while, the brook dried up. Now then, if God doesn't give us water from the brook and food by the ravens, what will he do? He sent Elijah over there to Sarita, where a widow woman was. And he said, there, she'll feed you there. And he went over there, and this poor old widow woman, all she had was a, a little bit of meal in the barrel and a little oil in the cruise. And he asked for a drink of water, and while she was getting the drink of water, he hollered at her and says, well, bring me a biscuit, too. Bring me a cake. Bring me some bread, too. And she looked back and says, Elijah? She said, I don't have anything but a little meal in the barrel and a little all in the cruise, and I'm going out here to gather two sticks so that I can make the bread, and my son and I are going to eat this. This is all we have, and die. We have no hope beyond this. And he says, oh, you go make that bread. But he says, bring me a little cake first. Someone might say, well, that was a selfish old prophet preacher, wasn't he? He says, bring me a little cake first. You know what it indicated? It indicated that this woman would bring that and... Thus, she was honoring God first. Now, God, uh, Elijah wasn't claiming to be God. Don't misunderstand me. But he was wanting to see if this woman would honor God above herself. If she had put God first in her life. That's all he was wanting to see. You say, oh, he wanted that cake for himself. Certainly, he needed it. He needed food. But the main thing was to put her to the test and see if she would honor God above all else. And so... She brought him a little cake first, and then her and her son did eat. And behold, all during that drought and that famine, the Bible says, the meal in the barrel did not 
failed, and neither did the oil in the cruise. It seemed like it miraculously multiplied and just kept on. There was always some there. There was always some there. Sometimes you go to the, the flour barrel and you start to get out a little bit and it seems like there's still a little bit more, still a little bit more. Well, that's what God did in a miraculous way for this woman, this widow woman, and in taking care of Elijah. So, it says in this, look in the last part of this verse, verse 19. It says, in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. Isn't that a wonderful thing that, that in the time when all around us are starving, God some way will supply our needs. He will supply your need. If you'll what? What's the bottom line? Put God first. That's the bottom line. If we'll learn to put God first, then He'll certainly take care of us. That's exactly what Jesus said when He said in Matthew 6, verse, uh, I believe, chapter 6, verse 33, He says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. What was He talking about? He wasn't talking about all the things we want. Certainly not. He wasn't talking about all the luxuries in life, but they were discussing food and clothing and shelter. He says God clothes the lilies of the field. He says God feeds the birds of the air. And he says, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, what ye shall drink, and wherewithal ye shall be clothed. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. So he knows you have need of these things. But he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, what things, that you have need of, shall be added unto you. So if we'll learn to put God first and give him due honor and respect and reverence and look to him and trust him, he will take care of the rest of it. And we need to trust him with our soul. We need to trust him with our lives. Now then, let's look at verse 20. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke, shall they consume away. In other words, judgment is coming upon the, the wicked, and God's children have the true riches that, that he gives. Look at verse 21 now. It says, The wicked borroweth and payeth not again. It means they're greedy. They borrow and they pay not again. That verse we read in Psalm 73, let me read verse 7. It says, Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. In other words, they're greedy. But it says, But the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. Showeth mercy and giveth. Now, isn't it a wonderful thing to be able to give? Doesn't the Bible say in the book of Acts, It's more blessed to give than to receive? Sometimes when you give, you get back more than you, than you ever dreamed of. Many times, if you will, just give because God expects us to. Or give when there is a need. I don't, I'm not talking about throwing everything away. I'm talking about giving where it's needed. And when you do that, he says that he will repay. Now then, it says, The righteous showeth mercy and giveth. When you give, give because you love. Showeth mercy. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. If you want someone to be merciful to you in your troubles, trials, sicknesses, or sorrows, or whatever comes, then you be the kind that will show mercy to someone else when they're in that same condition. So if you show mercy, you're going to receive mercy. And we ought to put it into practice. Someone says, well, that's the, that's the uh, 
Sermon on the Mount. Well, that's what we ought to live by. Any, any part of God's Word we ought to put into practice and application in our lives. You say, well, this is for David of old. Well, Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. All of it is God's Word and instructs us. And if we'll apply it to ourselves, it'll fit us some way or another. If you study the first psalm of all these psalms, it's very short, only six verses. Half of it pertains to the righteous and half to the wicked. And this is an introduction to all of the psalms so that you'll have, all the way through all of the psalms, a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. That's what it's all about. The whole of the book of Psalms shows us where the righteous stand with God and where the wicked stand with God. And the first psalm introduces us to that. You read the first psalm when you get home. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law and his word doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That's the first three verses. Then it says, But... The ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way, not only the ungodly, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So you have a summation in that first psalm, an introduction, that tells us what we're going to find in all of the psalms. And that's why when we come to these psalms and we're saying the righteous does this and the wicked does that and God does this for the righteous and God judges the wicked, that's what it's all about all the way through. Now then, let's look at some more things. Here in verse 22, For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. You see, God can bless some and curse some. In verse 23, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. They're directed by the Lord. And he delighteth in his way. If God directs your steps, do you delight in that way that God directs you? Verse 24. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Think of that for a moment. Though a child of God, you, if you're a child of God, and you stumble so as to fall down... And we can fall in many ways. We could fall into sin. We could fall into distress or despondency. We could fall away from, from doing the things God would have us to do. We can fall in many ways. But the word actually means stumble so as to fall. You're not down, but you would fall if God didn't uphold you. The Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Now, it's not like you have to hold on to God to be saved. It's God is holding on to you to keep you safe. You see, if you're holding on to God... You might let your hand slip loose and you might fall anyway. And we should desire to hold close to God. But the main thing about it is that it's His hand that has the grip and He's the one that's holding it. You've ever seen a fellow hanging over out of a window somewhere, a strong hand holding him so he won't fall and hit the ground. Everything depends upon the strength of that man that's up on top that has the grip. The fellow that's down there, he doesn't have much of a chance. But the fellow that's up here and has the strong grip, that's the Lord. He has the grip and he holds. The, it says, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Look at verse 25. 
David says, I have been young and now am old. That's the first verse we pointed to to show you that David wrote this psalm when he was old. The latter days of his life. He says, I have been young and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken. God will not forsake his own, nor his seed begging bread. He says, I've lived a long time and I've never seen where God forsook his own children. This ought to be evidence that he will not. In other words, if God has not forsaken us, then certainly he will not do it. If God has been faithful to take care of us, you know, whatever age you happen to be right now, you say, well, God has taken care of me these years. I know the Lord has provided for me and taken care of me. And you can rest assured He has. Then you can, by that token, say, well, I know that He will not fail me now or forsake me now. I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Look in verse 26. He is ever merciful and lendeth, and his seed is blessed. That's his children are blessed. God is merciful. Now look in verse 27. Depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. In other words, he's showing us the blessings of, of living a life that's pleasing to God. Depart from evil. Shun. The Bible tells us to shun evil. The Bible tells us to flee from certain things. The Bible tells us to resist the devil. And he shall flee from you. In other words, you're not going to get through this Christian life without a fight. Everyone has to put forth some effort. And sometimes we just cow down and say, let the devil have his way. If we let him have his way, he's certainly going to take advantage of us. He'll put all kinds of evil thoughts in your minds. He'll cause you to do things that are wrong. He'll cause you to sin. He'll cause you to, to fall. But the Lord is the one that upholds you, and He tells us how to live. He says, depart from evil. If you're over here where there's evil, that means turn your back on it and leave. Get out of there. Go some other place. Depart from it. If you say, I'm going to depart uh, this city or this building or this this uh, street or wherever you are, you're, you're leaving it. Well, that's what God tells us to do to evil. In fact, a part of the Lord's prayer is what? Deliver us from evil. Right? And that word means not only evil things, but the evil one. Who is the evil one? Satan, isn't it? We need to pray the Lord will deliver us from evil. Here it says, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. In verse 28, I love this verse. It says, for the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever. But the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Look at that. You have always the righteous and the wicked. You have the Lord loveth judgment. He will not forsake his saints. It says they're preserved forever. What do you think about someone that's kept, preserved by the Lord? If we preserve something, if we keep something, it might ruin, it might spoil. But what God keeps will be kept. And the Lord will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. And then verse 29, it says, The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The righteous shall inherit the land. Let's go back and cap, up, cap off some of these things that we've already studied. In verse 21, we, we have seen that the wicked are greedy. In verse 22, we've seen, we have seen how that the righteous... Meet with divine approval. 
And in verse 23, we see how the righteous have divine leadership, that the Lord leads us. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And in verse 24, we see how that the righteous may stumble so as to fall, but God will restore us. He's the restorer. In verse 25, we see how that they are never forsaken. In verse 26, we see how the children of the righteous are blessed. In verse 28, we see how the children of the wicked shall perish. In verse 27, we see how the unrighteous can become righteous, depart from evil and do good and dwell forevermore. And then in verses 28 and 29, we see why... Why the wicked should be saved? Why should they be saved? Because the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. So we see a lot of things by looking back into these verses. Now then, in verse uh, 30, it says, the, the mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. It's a wonderful thing to be able to consider how the tongue speaks. If you uh, read Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, I want to show you something here. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. It says this, Only let your conversation, this is how you speak and how you walk, how you live, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So this is the wisdom, the mouth of the righteous, back in Psalm 37, verse 30. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of judgment. In the New, if you bring that over into the New Testament equivalent, it's a wise thing. The Bible says the gospel has made us wise unto salvation. The Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Christ has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so we find that the equivalent in the New Testament of our tongue speaking righteousness and, uh, and speaking wisdom and talking of judgment has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which both makes us wise in the salvation. It teaches us the, that the righteousness of Christ can be ours, and it teaches us the things that are necessary. Now let's look at verse 31. Hold your place, Psalm 37, verse 31. It says, The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. Is the law of God in your heart and mine? That's where it needs to be. And... You see, the righteous man's heart is spoken of here. The righteous man's heart. The law of God. Does the law of God rule your heart? Is this what you live by and how you live every day? And if this is true, none of his steps shall slide. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. You know what? God is more concerned about uh, us than anything, and that's our inward condition. He's more concerned about that than He is anything about us, our inward spiritual relationship to Him. Now then, how is our heart purified? Blessed are the pure in heart. God is able to purify the heart. He cleanses us from sin. We trust in His, in Christ's atoning work on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. The Bible says 
that He shed His blood for our salvation. The Bible teaches that He was a substitute for us. He took our place, my place and your place, in death. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Brother Shelton read that passage this morning. It says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, Christ became sin for us, who knew no sin, He had no sin of His own, that we might be made the righteousness of God 